Welcome to the Cryptocurrency Teens podcast, a podcast aimed to educate teens on cryptocurrency and financial literacy. Each episode features thought leaders in the crypto and blockchain industry or inspiring entrepreneurs from the business world who share their career journeys and words of wisdom for teenagers. I'm Abigail Lee, the host of this podcast series, the founder of CryptocurrencyTeens.com and a junior in high school from New York City. For this episode, I'm excited to interview Ari Jules. Ari is the Wheel Family Foundation and Joan and Sanford Wheel Professor in the Jacobs Institute at Cornell Tech and the Technion Computer Science faculty member at Cornell University. He is co-director of the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts and also chief scientist at Chainlink. Hi, Ari. Welcome to this podcast episode. Thanks for inviting me, Abigail. Pleasure to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure to have you on as well. So Ari, I see that you are a professor at Cornell Tech and chief scientist at Chainlink Labs. Can you tell us more about your university company and roles? Yeah, well, I'm, I guess actually wearing three different hats. I'm a faculty member at Cornell Tech, as you know. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with Cornell Tech, it's uh, a Cornell and Technion Applied Sciences campus in New York City, uh, fairly new. Um, I'm also a co-director of the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts, or IC3, which is a blockchain initiative that involves faculty at a number of different campuses. And then finally, as you noted, I'm chief scientist at Chainlink, which is a blockchain company that builds what are called decentralized Oracle networks. Those are systems that do a few different things, but what people are most familiar with is their role in relaying critical data to a variety of different smart contracts. Now, um, I guess I'll talk maybe a little bit about my academic role since I I expect that's probably what would be of most interest to the listeners of the podcast. Uh, I'm an educator, of course. I teach blockchain courses. Um, I also work with uh, PhD students doing research on a number of different topics. Uh, recently, we've published papers on a few different things. I can talk about a few of those if you think those will be of interest. Yeah, we would love to hear more about what papers you're working on. Okay, so let me let me mention a few different lines of research. We recently published a paper, what's called a measurement study, of a smart contract pyramid scheme called Forsage. Uh, pyramid schemes are scams that have been around since time immemorial. The idea is that you make money by recruiting other people to the scam. And it's a pyramid in the sense that those who did the recruiting early in the development of the scheme tend to make the most money. They're at the top of this pyramid. Those at the bottom are contributing money, but not making money. And uh, this uh, particular scheme is called Forsage. It was very popular at one point, one of the top gas users in Ethereum. I don't remember whether it was number two or number three, but somewhere up there. And what we found, not surprisingly, is that alluring as the scheme was to thousands of users, 88% of the people roughly participating in the scheme lost money. So our hope is that this research will serve as a warning uh, to users as pyramid schemes continue to develop on Ethereum. They're not going away. They're successors to Forsage developing. Uh, that, 
Go what ahead. I think you had a question. Drew you to this topic in particular. It's really interesting, but at the same time, a little bit obscure in some sense. It's obscure, but it has, I think, significant ramifications. What drew us to it is that we saw this contract, this forsage contract, burning, as I said, consuming a lot of gas in Ethereum. We had no idea what it was. So we started to poke around and then realized, okay, here's a pyramid scheme. What makes this interesting? As I said, pyramid schemes have been around for centuries, if not longer, but nobody in the past has been able to study them. They're here to stay. Lots of people participate in them, yet it's very hard for us sociologically and so on and so forth to understand how they operate. Well, the nice thing about smart contracts, as you know, is that they operate on blockchains and are therefore transparent. We can see all the activity within the system, within the scam in this case. So for the first time, we have visibility into this feature of society, if you will, uh, that we, we've not been able to understand in the past. So that's part of the general significance. It's also significant because we understand now how it is that people are attracted to these schemes and the misrepresentations that draw people to smart contracts they probably shouldn't be interacting with. In the advertising for Forsage, promoters made statements like, this is a smart contract, it's operating on a blockchain, so you can trust it, you cannot be cheated. Well, that's clearly not true. And we showed that it's not true. And there are other misrepresentations of this kind. So we, the takeaways from the study are, number one, that we, we have a better understanding of how pyramid schemes work, and we can warn people that scams of this type or schemes of this type result in most people losing their money. But we can also help regulators, for instance, governments warn people away from these schemes by debunking the common false claims made around them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did you find that maybe government intervention might be important in helping regulate blockchain? Well, we were approached by one government, for instance, that took note of our research and is dealing with a similar scam. And I think we were able to provide them with useful guidance. I do think that governments have a role to play in healthy regulation of the blockchain ecosystem. I, I hope that that regulation is not unduly heavy handed, but I think it's badly needed. And this is evidence of the fact that when a system is not regulated, people get hurt. Did your study provide any insight on how to stay safe when investing in crypto in general? Um, I don't think the study provided guidance that broad. Uh, we can talk about we can talk about that if you like. Uh, maybe maybe we we'll talk about that a, a little later. So I, I do have some things to say about that. But the paper itself was directed specifically at this narrow type of scam. As I said, the ramifications are larger. The scam itself functions in a very particular way, and there are plenty of copycats. But uh, the majority of the ecosystem is not, of course, uh, implementing pyramid schemes. And in terms of your role as a professor um, as a whole, can you tell us more about like, what you do in terms of like teaching, um, just like classes you offer, stuff like that? I teach a 
regularly a couple of different courses. One is a general security course, security and applied cryptography course uh, at the master's level. Cornell Tech is a graduate only campus, so we don't have un undergraduates, just master's students and PhD students. And then I also pretty regularly teach a master's level blockchain course, which covers a whole range of topics, consensus protocols, decentralized finance, um, Bitcoin mining, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, the crypto industry changes really rapidly. So how do you kind of account for that when teaching material and coming up with stuff to teach your students? That's a great question. I would say that some of the course content I regard as semi-permanent in the sense that it remains relevant through the vicissitudes of blockchain development. For instance, I teach the foundations of consensus protocols, Byzantine agreement, and that's something that students should understand no matter what sort of consensus protocol they're interested in. Um, Bitcoin is probably here to stay. So understanding the dynamics of the Bitcoin ecosystem and even looking into historical studies of Bitcoin, I think is useful. DeFi is something that I introduced after teaching the course for a year or two because it came to prominence very rapidly. And that is, belongs to the part of the course that I think is ever changing. Uh, next time I teach it, next semester, for instance, I'll probably talk about NFTs, which were nowhere on the horizon, crypto kitties aside, when I first started teaching the course. So I think there's a combination, as I said, of durable material and ephemeral, or at least rapidly changing material that requires adaptation from year to year. Yeah, so in the past, I've interviewed other people and I've asked them what their thoughts are on having a formal education on crypto. And most of the people I asked said that they didn't think it was necessary, especially in um, this day and age where you can access anything online pretty much. So would you say there are benefits to learning about crypto in college? I think it really depends on your career objectives. I would say that if you're interested in getting into cryptocurrency, there are a few different disciplinary angles you can take. Computer science is an obvious entree into the field, but I would say that the field actually needs people from a variety of disciplines. I would not suggest that universities develop majors in cryptocurrency. I think if you want to enter the industry, it's good to have a more foundational education, as it were, right? to have an education in computer science and to use it as a springboard for a career in cryptocurrency. I do think it's good to have courses at the undergraduate and graduate levels in cryptocurrency because there are so many cryptocurrency enthusiasts. Yeah, so switching gears a little bit, what was your career journey like to get into the crypto industry yourself? And why did you decide to get into it? Well, I guess I started working on cryptocurrency before cryptocurrency as such existed. Way back in 1993, when I was a PhD student, I was given a paper by a fellow student on what was called at the time eCash. This is an antecedent to Bitcoin, developed decades before Bitcoin. And 
at the time, I wasn't studying cryptography. I wasn't studying cryptocurrency, which didn't exist, as I mentioned. I wasn't even studying eCash. But this paper really fascinated me. It fascinated me because what struck me about the paper was the way that mathematics through cryptography could have a direct and palpable impact on the design of software and the security of software. Now, specifically, because cryptography is used in the design of eCash systems and today the design of cryptocurrency, you have systems whose very security depends upon the mathematical properties of the tools in use. And that's pretty unusual, even in the relatively mathematical world of computer science. And it was exciting to me because, you know, finally it, here in cryptography, you can find some brain teasers that are more than games that actually have a quintessential importance to computer system design. Um, so I started working on cryptography. I worked on eCash for a while, then started working on other topics like cybersecurity. I spent 17 years in industry at a company called RSA, security company. Uh, and then when I got back into academia, uh, or got into academia, I should say in 2014, a colleague, another professor at Cornell, introduced me to smart contracts. She explained to me what smart contracts were all about and so on and so forth. Now, I wasn't particularly interested in Bitcoin, and I'm still not especially interested in Bitcoin, but smart contracts are a completely different uh, game, as it were. They can do a lot more than just move money around, as we've seen with the efflorescence of things like decentralized finance and NFTs. Um, so at that point, I was hooked. Uh, interestingly, uh, this colleague and I uh, spent an afternoon trying to figure out what smart contracts were good for. And the killer application we came up with was literally a killer application. The best application we could come up with was crime. So the first paper I published on smart contracts was about how to use smart contracts to commit crimes with the goal, of course, of preventing people from using smart contracts to commit crimes. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that's really interesting, actually. So how did you learn about blockchain and smart contracts, especially when a lot of the information um, on these two topics are very, it's really hard to understand for, I would say, like the average person. Although I know you might not be like the average person, but how did you learn about all of this? People often come to me and ask, is there a good tutorial so I can learn about this stuff? And I think the best resource I've been able to point people to is now pretty outdated, namely the Bitcoin textbook from Princeton, which is good, but uh, and I think explains things well, but certainly isn't sufficient to understand the blockchain world as it exists today. It's very hard to educate yourself about a moving target. Uh, I My approach is to read research papers and talk to people Others I know will participate in Discord channels and follow uh, researchers and others on Twitter. I don't think there's a really good answer. As I said, I do think it's important to understand the foundations. Once you understand the foundations, you can perhaps contextualize rapid change a little bit more easily and it makes more sense. You can understand the variant consensus protocols people are devising 
if you understand the basics of Byzantine agreement, proof of work, proof of stake, things like that. But there really isn't a good answer as to how to get a leg up as a, as a beginner that I'm aware of at any rate. Have you ever considered maybe writing a new, more updated textbook on blockchain and all of that? I have seriously considered it, but I realized that by the time the book was finished, it would be outdated. So I chose not to do that. I think uh, podcasts like yours actually are not a bad way for people perhaps to get a bit of a toehold. Textbooks though are, are, are problematic in a field that moves as quickly as uh, blockchain, field of blockchains and cryptocurrency. Yeah, I think finding a solution for that will be really important, especially as more people kind of want to learn more about crypto. But at the same time, there are a lot of technical details that it can be really hard to understand unless you have a background in computer science and stuff like that. There are some good computer science oriented courses online. And I'll also mention that there's a new DeFi course online that several faculty are co-teaching in which I, I give one lecture that is meant to be accessible to non-technologists. One of the co-instructors in fact has a background in finance economics. So I think resources like that can, can be somewhat helpful. Yeah, that actually brings me to my next question. So for the high school juniors and seniors who are deciding which colleges to apply to, do you recommend any good colleges to study crypto or blockchain at or any specific courses? You know, there, there are a lot of rankings of universities in terms of their blockchain offerings. And I, I think I noticed one on your site that, that certainly lists some very good places. But I think I personally wouldn't choose a university on the basis of its cryptocurrency offerings because of a remark that I made a little earlier which is that I think as an undergrad, your goal is really to get solid foundations in some field of study that may lead to a blockchain oriented career. And you also have to recognize career goals change dramatically over time. Like when I was in college, I wanted to be an economist then a professor of classics. I grew up, now I'm a failed economist and failed professor of classics, I'm a professor of computer science. So you never know where you're gonna end up. And I think, for that reason, it's good to learn how to communicate effectively, how to solve problems effectively in a general sense, and to gain foundational knowledge in computer science or economics or mathematics or the social sciences or whatever field you want to specialize in. Those things are always going to be in demand. So I myself would think about the quality of your intended university in terms of your likely major and maybe treat blockchain activities as a sideline. That's something you can get into at a later stage or concurrently. Yeah, and do you, like, what do you see in the future of crypto? Do you think that it's something that um, students could really benefit from learning about right now? I believe so. I think it really depends on your career objectives. If you want to go into finance or for that matter, computer science, or at least many subdisciplines in computer science, blockchains are gonna be important. And they're certainly worth learning about. It remains to be seen what impact they'll have on other disciplines. They seem to be turning, NFTs in particular, seem to be 
turning the art world on its head. And I can imagine them making huge inroads into the practice of art, or at least the creation and sale of digital art. So that's another discipline where it may be useful to learn about these things. In other disciplines, as I think you suggested earlier, it may be that blockchains themselves get abstracted away. In other words, sit on the back end of the systems people are interacting with. So they don't need to worry about the mechanics, the nitty gritty details of blockchain functioning. Now, as technologies mature, they tend to drop lower in the stack and they disappear from view. That's one of the marks of a successful security technology among other things and blockchains can be viewed as a security technology. Do you think blockchain has been effectively integrated into daily life? I certainly don't see it as part of mainstream life. I think most technology savvy people know something about blockchains these days, but we're not using it as a day-to-day payment mechanism. I don't know how many people actually own NFTs, but I'd be surprised if it's more than a few million. So I don't think they have directly touched the lives of most people. At some point, one can hope that they will if, if they are successful and bring their promised benefits, then ideally they're making the lives of many millions of people, possibly billions of people better through things like financial inclusion, possibly by creating financial instruments that incentivize better ecological practices. In principle, this is a project one of my students has been slowly working on in principle that can be used to do things like combat climate change, provide incentives for people to decarbonize. I I would like to see all those things come to fruition. We're pretty early in the development of blockchains. So none of those things has really happened in a broad way. Yeah, and also do you have any safety advice um, or words of wisdom that you would like to share particularly pertaining to blockchain and crypto? Well, many people are interested in cryptocurrency because they want to make a lot of money. It's a gambling parlor. So I would say if you're investing, you basically need to be prepared to lose your money. You may make a lot of money, but you could lose all of it at the same time, given the volatility of the market and the fact that there are thousands of cryptocurrencies and we will surely see consolidation at some point. Those thousands will diminish to maybe hundreds, possibly just tens. Could you tell us more about what you do as chief scientist at Chainlink? Well, I'm helping Chainlink develop its research roadmap. Over the past year, we issued a white paper, what we're calling our V2 white paper, which provides a roadmap for the next, I don't know, three to five years, at least a partial roadmap and mentions some of the new technologies we're in the process of deploying. And I can mention a couple of those if you think they're of interest. Sure, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to hear about this. Well, one of them is a staking mechanism. Uh, Staking you're possibly familiar with from proof of stake systems. In proof of stake systems, validators deposit cryptocurrency 
And if they're caught misbehaving, forfeit that cryptocurrency. They are slashed. That's the term that's used in blockchain circles. Staking in an Oracle system, Chainlink is in the business of creating Oracle systems, looks a little different. In a proof of stake system, you can tell that somebody's cheating because you'll see that this validator has validated two different forks, right? Has validated two different views of the universe, which it shouldn't be doing. You have objective evidence. In the case of blockchains, uh, Oracle systems rather, things can get a little bit more complicated because it's not clear what the truth is, right? If you ask what is the price of Bitcoin in dollars at this very moment, there is no definitive answer. Prices get established by markets and prices will be different on different markets. So truth is a little fuzzy. And that means that staking in an Oracle system looks very different than it does elsewhere. What we've been able to do in Chainlink is develop a mechanism with a pretty counterintuitive and I think somewhat remarkable property. We want to secure the system against potential bribers. These are people who are willing to pay Oracle nodes to lie. Security in this case means in enforcing the condition that a briber has to spend a lot of money to subvert the system. Now you'd think that the level of security you got, uh, crypto economic security would be equal to the amount of money that all the nodes together have deposited, right? The amount of money that they give up if they cheat. So say you've got seven nodes and each has put in a million dollars, you would think that a briber would need only $7 million to corrupt all those nodes. But actually we've designed a system where the amount of money a briber would need is much larger than 7 million in this particular example. It's actually quadratic in the number of nodes operating in the system. So it would be more like, not exactly, but more like uh, 49 million in, in this case. And that's pretty remarkable that the amount of money in the system ends up being much less than the amount of money that a briber needs to devote to the subversion of the system. Uh, so that's one thing discussed in the, the white paper. Uh, another that I'll briefly mention is what we call fair, fair sequencing service. This relates to a subtle but pervasive and really problematic feature of smart contract systems. As you probably know, and your listeners probably know, when a miner creates a block, a miner gets to decide what transactions are in the block, and the miner gets to decide how those transactions are ordered. These systems are supposed to be decentralized, but actually this is a temporary form of centralization. The miner creating a block has complete power to determine, as I said, what transactions are in the block and how they get ordered. And that power, as it turns out, can be used for good or ill. In particular, miners today are often essentially taking bribes to order transactions in such a way that arbitragers, these are like high frequency traders on Wall Street, people who make money by gaming the financial system can essentially extract money from the pockets of ordinary users. Let me give you an example. Suppose I see that you, Abigail, have uh, initiated a transaction to buy Bob's bubble token on some AMM, decentralized exchange. Well, I know that once you buy the token, the price is going to rise. 
So what I can do is the following. If I can get two transactions into the system in exactly the order I want, I can sandwich your transaction. What that involves is buying Bob's bubble token before you buy it, you then cause the price to rise, and then I immediately turn around and sell it. If I can do this sandwiching, I have a guaranteed return. Where is that profit coming from? It's coming from you. Because I place a buy order before your buy order, I'm causing the price to rise before you buy the token, and that means you're going to get a worse execution price. So the point is that order matters fundamentally in financial systems, and miners today can manipulate the ordering of transactions. And th this, this is quite problematic, at least under certain circumstances, like the one I just described. But what Chainlink is building is a system we call fair sequencing services. What it does is decentralize the process of ordering transactions. Instead of a miner deciding unilaterally how transactions are ordered, in the fair sequencing service, you have a constellation of nodes, an Oracle network deciding collectively how those transactions get ordered. And we have a couple of different mechanisms for helping ensure that they're ordered fairly, but one intuitively, at least one fair way to order them would be in terms of the time that they're received. Uh, service should be first come first serve. And that way sandwich attacks are no longer viable. So those are just a couple of the things described in the white paper. Yeah, it seems like um, you guys focus a lot on issues of security when it comes to crypto. Um, is there any particular reason why you guys focus on security? Well, as I said before, blockchains, I at least view fundamentally as a security technology. Why are blockchains useful? They're useful because they instantiate a strong new trust model. Previously, two strangers conducting commerce on the internet required, in most cases, a trusted third party. If you're a vendor selling some software or something on the internet, and I'm paying by credit card, you have to send me the software before I pay or I have to pay before I receive the software. And either of us can cheat in the course of this transaction. Blockchains, so, so we need a trusted third party to mediate like the credit card company, which will refund my money if I don't get the software. Blockchains eliminate the need for a trusted third party and that is a security goal. So with that model in mind, I say that blockchains are fundamentally a security technology. Right, and you previously mentioned that you thought the government should play some role in regulation. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I know, um, I think recently there's been a lot of news on um, governments thinking to regulate, governments um, choosing to not regulate. I think even stuff on like Biden's, Biden's stance on um, regulation of crypto. So what are your thoughts? Well, this is getting a little outside my bailiwick. I'm not an expert on regulation, but as I said, I do think that regulation is important, that if consumers are not protected, you end up with things like smart contract pyramid schemes, you end up with tokens that are not delivering on their promises. And these, these things have been rampant. So regulation, if it's too heavy handed, can be harmful. I would like to see regulation enacted in a nuanced way, one that's sensitive to the needs of blockchain users and recognizes 
the incredible potential of blockchain technologies. But I do think it's important for consumers to enjoy a reasonable degree of protection, probably more than they enjoy today in the blockchain world, at least. Right. Another question that I feel kind of comes from like protection and security when it comes to crypto investing is the fact that crypto isn't fiat money, so it's not backed by anything. So a lot of people don't view it as real money. What are your thoughts on this? Well, in a sense, real money isn't real money. What's backing the U.S. dollar is the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, no longer gold, which was phased out in the 1970s. So people have, since the beginning of time, have tried to understand exactly what money is and what money is changes over time. I think that cryptocurrencies are, in some senses, as legitimate as fiat currency. Mm -hmm. I think I was sort of getting at what is kind of like the value proposition of investing in, like, for example, Bitcoin, as opposed to more traditional forms of investment. I see. Well, when you invest in something, you're investing on the assumption that that something is going to produce real value, something of benefit to the world. You invest in a company that's manufacturing candy, for instance, you do that with the supposition that the company will profitably be able to sell candy, deliver some good to the world. Well, candy rots teeth, so the, the good is perhaps uh, not as great as that of other goods uh, or uh, consumer goods. Uh, but you get the point that when you're investing in something, you're, you're doing so because you believe it's going to deliver, ultimately deliver value. If you're investing in a cryptocurrency, taking that view, you should be doing so because you believe in the underlying technology, that you believe that the technology is going to deliver some value to end users. That value could be a better payment rails. It could be the implementation of new financial instruments that reduce frictions in markets, but it has to be something. If you take a token like Shiba Inu, for instance, it's not clear what the something is seems like there is no something. So that's not an investment. Some systems, of course, have associated utility tokens. In that case, when you buy the token, you're buying the right to use the system. And that's a little different than an investment in equities, for instance. Yeah, that answered my question. So since we're almost out of time on this episode, do you have any other thoughts or advice that you would like to share with our listeners? I think we've covered everything. I, I would just maybe emphasize a point I made a little earlier that I think the blockchain world badly needs people with a diversity of backgrounds and skills if it's going to mature and benefit a meaningful population of users. Right? Today, we mostly have people in computer science and finance. There's not a lot of gender and racial diversity. And I think that's unfortunate and counterproductive. And we need uh, people interested in design so that technology can made, be made beautiful and accessible. We need sociologists so we can understand how blockchain communities build and successfully navigate around the pathologies, if you will, of centralized systems. We need ecologists so we can stop Bitcoin mining from adding fuel to the fire that's consuming our world and make blockchain technologies a force for environmental good. So 
to summarize, I think we need to broaden the community of people involved in this whole venture if it's really going to succeed. Yeah, and I think definitely my generation will play a really big role in that. We have a very different attitude on crypto than the generations now do. So I'm excited to see how that happens. And yeah. As am I. Okay, so Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such a pleasure and a really educational experience. Thank you, Abigail. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Cryptocurrency Teens podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and visit the CryptocurrencyTeens.com website to find extra resources and info. See you soon. Disclaimer, the views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of cryptocurrency teams and its staff. Second disclaimer is that this is not financial advice. The information contained in this podcast is not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as financial advice. In general, the advice offered by our guests should be general advice about the cryptocurrency industry or the blockchain industry and not specific investment advice.